Welcome to Software Snack Bites. I'm your host, Sean McGosh of Bold Start Ventures, where we partner with DevFirst and SaaS founders from the first line of code. Today, we're excited to have Emilio Escobar on the pod. Emilio is currently CISO at Datadog and previously at Hulu, PlayStation, and various other orgs that we'll get into. We first actually got introduced through a mutual friend, Scott Halon at Datadog. And Scott, if you're listening, we, we love you and say hi. And I've been lucky to have Emilio as a friend since then. So uh, welcome, Emilio, to the pod. Thanks for having me. And I agree. Thank you, Scott. Why don't we just start off with your story? I mean, how'd you become the CISO of Datadog? I think my story isn't as maybe as interesting as others. I, I think I just pretty much just fell into it by, by sheer curiosity. So... You know, back then in Puerto Rico. So Puerto Rico, while being a, a, a U.S. territory, I don't know if it's still the same, but back then in the early 90s, we didn't have the latest and greatest tech that was available in the mainline of U.S. So, I mean, in the early 90s, everyone was still using dial-up, but even when the U.S. mostly had broadband, we were still using dial-up. But in the early 90s, access to the internet was through, you know, AOL, CompuServe, or all these other big providers and I remember my brother and I got our first PC probably around 93 or 94. We both share it. It was a, a Packard Bell. You know, I think if you ask me which was the first game that I ever played, the answer will be Mega Race on Windows 3.1. But anyways, like we wanted to get online and we didn't, we didn't have the money to pay CompuServe or anything like that. And back then things were a little bit more... I will say flexible and open than they are today and, and less strict. So we always found a game to like game the system. We figure out that if you did certain activities within AOL, you will get a CD with four more minutes or CompuServe. I think they, we discovered that they will bash your credit cards 30 days after the fact. So loan, loan checks were not a thing back then. So I'll just leave it at that. So it, it was a way of just doing what we, I mean, it wasn't anything malicious behind it or anything, right? Uh, that like we see some today, but it was just a matter of all my friends were online. I want to be with them. And and then that, from there, I moved to software and reading some some like IRC demons, getting involved and or interested in Linux. The first time I heard Linux, I thought it was an executable that you could just download and run um, and, and obviously learn from that. But I think it was more about being curious and seeing what else was out there and got involved in software, learned that, oh my God, I, you know, I see that if you pass this parameter that it's not expecting, it's going to crash the software and then just getting more into curious about that. Um, and the rest is history. I, I took on a developer role and from there built software or secure software and move, move up the ranks. So uh, let's talk a little bit more about your journey. I mean, I happen to, to know that you worked at a certain you know, three-letter government agency, I guess, is the way to, to properly say it or something like that. And so I'm sure there's some stuff that you can't talk about there, but just can you kind of describe what was the experience like? Uh, how'd you even get into that organization? And then, you know, also what does security look like in a offensive manner versus a, a defensive one, where I think we typically talk about that, and we will certainly be talking about that later, but what does it yeah. look like from an offensive perspective? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, uh, I work for a no such, no such agency. And uh, that's, that's a, a, I guess a, a in, inside joke there, but acronym still, still stands. How I got there, it was actually by being at the right place at the right time. So I was in college then already, and I had a friend, a classmate of mine that had done an internship the year prior with that agency. And some of these government agencies and other private sector companies would come to my school and they will have like a job fair and things like that. And I remember walking by the, by the NSA booth and, and going like, Oh, I might, 
hey, that actually might be pretty cool. And then, like I said, my buddy was like really encouraging me to to apply because he had a lot of fun and, and you get to work on cool stuff. So I was like, okay, you know, what's the worst that can happen? It's a no. So I applied, interviewed, ended up getting the job. And then I had to deal with the oh crap moment that now I have to fill out the this whole let, tell me, tell me everything about the last 10 years of your life. Um, as a 19 year old, as a, you know, one funny part about my story there was that two weeks before I was scheduled to fly to Maryland to go start my, my internship, I ended up calling the, the clearance office to say like, Hey, what's going on? And they told me they had lost my paperwork. Yeah, I don't know if I ever told you this story, but yeah. And there I was like super stressed because I already had my, you know, my tickets purchased and, and all the logistics of, hey, mom, I'm moving away for six months. See ya. And I'm like, what do you mean you lost my paper? You're the NSA. How does this happen? Right. That should have been a little bit of a foreshadowing of what I was about to encounter. And what I wanted to get to is a lot of people think that, you know, they believe in the movies that these agencies are super tech advanced and you walk in there and there's sliding doors everywhere and, and sensors everywhere. No, you're talking about a taxpayer-funded agency that has a budget that has to get approved by Congress. It's as you know, scrappy as it can be. So it was pretty interesting. Like the first office I worked for, I, I was one of four co-ops. This 19-year-old kid from the University of Puerto Rico working with kids who were like from MIT, Georgia Tech. You know, you name the school. In fact, I remember one time we were working on these chips, digital signal processing chips, DSPs, and one of my co-op mates and from Georgia Tech literally took the DSP class from by the person who invented the chip. So if you talk about imposter syndrome, I think that's like maybe I think probably the most extreme that I felt. But I always, you know, the, the, the environment was pretty good about encouraging people to just do what you needed to do. And in fact, that was when I first got exposed to Python. I had never worked with Python before. And the tech director of the office, the first day that we started, all four of us, gave us a reference manual of Python. I believe it was on a Friday after like onboarding and all that. And he's like, yeah, by Monday, I expect all of you to be able to write Python code. <laughs> so so it was as hardcore as you will find in any other private company, right? So the expectations are, are the same. And uh, it was a lot of fun. I think it was an experience that had it not been for that experience, I don't think I will be where I am today. And and we'll we'll talk a little bit about some of the other organizations that you've worked at, like PlayStation, Hulu. But uh, I think a lot of people would love to hear about Datadog. And so you know you've you are now the CISO of Datadog. Maybe for those who don't understand or, or know what it does, you know what's what's your tagline or, or brief pitch for for what Datadog does. So we're not an animal company. I answer that because I've been asked if, if we build a platform that veterinarians use when you go take your dog to, to get checked. Datadog is, in a TLDR version, is we are a cloud monitoring and security platform, right? So we give you visibility into your performance of your infrastructure applications, but also we monitor native services like RDS and things like that that cloud providers provide. And in the past couple of years, we've been building security products as well. To that so we're monitoring a security platform yeah the the security portfolio is something I'm, I'm very curious about because on the one hand you're focused again on on internal security at a datadog level to make sure that you know obviously datadog is protected but then on the, on the flip side you're also selling security products to other companies right so i mean i imagine there's just a lot of complexity in terms of you're getting pulled into customer conversations your team is getting pulled into customer conversations you also are you know, looking to build products internally, looking to buy products internally and, and externally, like, you know, just so how do you just manage all that? And, and what, what is actually going on, right? 
Yeah, and I appreciate that you actually think there's a management of that. I, 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 I kid, I joke. Yeah, so I, I, you know, one of the exciting things about my role is that external and internal um, aspect of my role, and I enjoy the external part a whole lot. Not that I don't enjoy the internal, but frankly, I don't wake up in the morning excited about like what to do with phishing emails and things of that nature. I enjoy more like helping people solve the problems. So I, we do deal with both. Um, I think you one time texted me saying that your goal will be one day to be able to pitch me a product that that we can buy. And, and by buy, I mean procure, not not just acquire the company or build it ourselves. We're 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 really really flexible when it comes to innovation and and what we can get into is pretty up in the air, right? Because we're in the business of giving customers context and that could be as a high level thing as I as I just meant it to be. Uh, so internally, how do we drive that is, you know, if we have a problem that we believe this is not just unique to Datadog and is within the realm of our products, then we prefer to actually just build something internally than go and buy something that solves it for us. Um, if it is a problem that is just specifically to Datadog because of our culture or pace or whatever it is, then we would prefer to build it internally than buying something that we will spend more time to try to make it fit for us rather than just hire a couple engineers and or assign a couple engineers and build it. And I, so when we talk about build versus buy, I think the balance of Datadog is different than I've had to deal with in other places where we would rather build before we buy something, especially if it's core to what we do. If it's something that doesn't make us better in the sense that doesn't make us push product out of the door faster or make better products or, or grow as a company, then we buy, right? That those are things that we procure. Doesn't mean they're not important or great products that we go after, right? So I'm not trying to diminish the things that we do procure, uh, but those are things that we just don't think the technology itself makes us as a, as a better company. It's just a service that we need because we need it. Um, so that's how we, we approach it. Does the internal side of things though, help understand like the roadmap that you may want to build on the security side. So what I mean by that is like you realize, Hey, this is a potential vulnerability or issue within our organization. We're going to have to build something here anyway. Well, why don't we just build it and then externalize that to our customers? Cause they probably have the same pain point. Is that, is that kind of how it may work or, or, or not really? That's exactly how it works. I, I, I truly believe that maybe less than a percent of the problems that the security problems that we deal with at Datadog are just unique to us. Um, the, the, most of them come from being an at scale in the cloud company that has pretty much the same needs that every other company who's cloud-born or operates in the cloud has. So we do have those discussions with our product counterparts of, if we need this, customers will want it. If it doesn't work for us, it's not going to work for customers. Um, I have two personas at Datadog and including on my team. So we have we, we do hire a lot of software developers for security as well, but we also have security engineers, detection engineers, incident responders at Datadog as well. So keeping a product that strikes both personas as a balance is mm -hmm. super difficult. So one of the conversations that I always have with Pierre, so he runs our security products, is who are we targeting with this product? Because we're, I will consider that we're a pretty large security team and the things that we expect or want out of a product are very different if you're just like a two-person security team, right? For example. So we do have those conversations because we don't want to lean too far from one side or the other. We want to keep it balanced. But if we were to approach one side more than the other, then we're going to approach a side that we think is going to give us the most growth, the most feedback, the most revenue or whatever, or, the, or we can provide the most value to our customers at the end of the day. Got it. Yeah. You mentioned being a, a cloud services-based company, right? And I think one, we all know the challenges 
and you move to the cloud, right? You no longer have this internal network that you can put a firewall around. You don't have this castle and moat strategy anymore, right? So how is that something that you guys have managed? And of course, we have to mention the buzzword of zero trust security. What do you think about that buzzword? And is that something that you know, you actually think, hey, we're, this is what we need to implement at, at Datadog? Or is it is it something that's more the marketing speak that we see out in the world. <laughs> so yes, you know, when you work for a cloud only company, so not only do we operate out of the cloud environment, we have no on-prem. I think, I believe my IT team has maybe a few servers in a IT closet in the New York office. And it's for like very specific things that Resolve just works out of the cloud, but we also use a lot of cloud in the sense of like SaaS vendors and what have you. So a lot of the complexity comes with the ease, ease the ease of access to these services, right? So it's very easy for somebody to go to any SaaS provider. And if you're doing it right, which is a product that even, even Bullstart invests in, is how do you actually onboard customers or new customers with low friction? I asked that. I, it's funny because I asked that for my products, right? The products that we built. But it also makes it challenging for when, we, when I only put my internal security hat of right. people can just go and sign up for everything or anything. Um, so, and then also in the cloud, right? Like, Identity is key, right? So I, I think, you know, to your point, you don't have these four walls that you only have to protect if you're on-prem. And if you have a firewall, then you're at least pretty well covered. In the cloud, you have to put a heavier emphasis in, on identity and identity security. So going to zero trust, I actually don't like calling it zero trust. And, and you know, I understand the marketing buzzword and why does it mean, what does it mean from an outside-in perspective, but... I believe that if security's job is to also partner with internal teams and gain their trust and have this collaborative environment, it's pretty hard for my teams to go and say, hey, we're trying to implement zero trust because we just don't trust you. Like it just can be interpreted in so many different ways. Uh, and maybe I'm being a little bit over paranoid on like the human interpretation of the words, uh, but I think they do matter a lot, right? Especially when when my teams are trying to work on something together. So but what we do have and what we have implemented and continue to work on is what are the guardrails and golden path that we want to build for our, for our people, right? So, you know, Datadog is successful or has been successful because of our pace of innovation. We, we, we build products, we build features at a pretty rapid pace, and we don't want to slow that down. Yeah, it's however, it does, however, it doesn't mean that we don't address risks, right? So... What is the right balance of gate? We don't have gates, but what is the right balance of security that we implement? And I believe that if you just build things that the engineers can use, say you're talking about product development only, um, where, hey, we build this tool that if you use it, it will enable your day-to-day. -day. You can move as fast as you want. But if you use this tool, these concerns are addressed for you that you don't have to worry about. Uh, some examples are Terraform templates, right, for how to build certain infrastructure in the cloud. Or, you know, like pre-commit hooks for Git so that way you're not committing secrets into code or things like that, right? So these are tools that would only get in the way when they need to, um, but otherwise they will let you play. So that's how we, we think about security. From an identity and access standpoint, it's more about how do we allow you to do what you need to do without getting in your way, but also not because not allow you to accidentally run a delete script and that's just going to delete all S3 buckets, right? So... So what's the right level of protection? So how so we apply zero trust without following the, you know, if you look up zero trust in a dictionary or buzzword dictionary, following the, the, the 
line by line. One of the things that we do is, you know, why should you only use an authorized device to access critical applications, right? But then making it very easy for you to get a device that works for you, right? So my IT team is good at providing you the technology that you need. We give everyone YubiKeys, right? So we give everyone yeah. the protections that they need. So we try to make it as easy as possible for them to do their job, but with security being considered. And third, and I'll, find, I'll finish with this, we, we've been really good at this since the beginning of the company that security is a shared responsibility. And I think risk management is also a team sport as well. And I may write a blog post about that at some point, but we allow the engineering teams to do their own risk reviews. We allow people to actually use their pragmatic risk mindset around like, like what's good, what's, what's not good. And then we can have a conversation about that. So I think yeah. it's, that's why I focus on the people and why I started with why we don't, I don't like the term zero trust. I love that. And I knew you would have a hot take on it. So I had to ask, <laughs> but it, it makes, it makes complete sense. I'm, I'm, I'm curious because Datadog versus Hulu and PlayStation, obviously all of those are, are tech forward organizations, but, but they're, they're just in different stages and also different sizes, right? So something like PlayStation, I don't even know, but been around for a very long time and, and, and Hulu as well. Imagine there's legacy systems, there's on-prem, there's cloud. And, and so what was the approach or, or I guess, how did it differ of, of what you're, you just described at Datadog versus what you were doing while you were at uh, Hulu and PlayStation in terms of managing the security in those organizations? Yeah, so I think my philosophy has been the same. It hasn't changed. You know, one story I can say is when I joined PlayStation, one of, you know, I always do this, but I remember like one of the things that I did was talk to stakeholders and ask like, hey, how's your relationship with security? So when I joined PlayStation, the product security team was just two people and I happened to be one of them. And and I kept asking in development teams, how do we work together? How does this work? And the main theme that I kept hearing was, we never hear from security until it's time to release the next version of the platform. Um, so for context, the work that I did in, in at PlayStation was for the backend platform where you know we process the payments, the entitlements, and things like that. I didn't work on like the gaming or, or game creation development aspect of it. So that that theme resonated with me across all the teams that I spoke to. And then when I asked the team or the other person, you know, what do we do? And it was pretty clear that, you know, the day before the release, we got a ticket that we had to look at all the user stories that we worked on for that release and then flag anything that we thought was security sensitive and say, hey, what do you do about this and that? And if we didn't like it, then we could just say not approved. And to me, that was mind boggling. Um, and so what I try to do was, act, uh, you know, Technology back then was different than it is now, right? So the products available today were not available back then. But it's like, hey, based on what we use and based on the things that we care about, how do I expose this to the development teams ahead of time so that way they just don't hear from us at the end? So as we grew the team, like some of the things that we did were we assigned champions or partners to different parts of the platform. You had the account, you had the commerce, you had video, you had other parts. And then that was like the dedicated contact for the development teams for that stream. And then from there, we grew to one partner, two partners, three partners, depending on the scale. But then those were the people who they would go to like the product design meetings, the product summits, the kickoff, the planning and all that. And they were ingrained with that line of the business so that they understood the concerns, they understood the constraints and then how to protect based on that. And I think that got, that got better. We could have done a whole lot more. Um, is it, is I it left, fair? Yeah. 
Is it fair to describe that, what you just described? I'm curious, like, is it, is it fair to say that your mindset is almost more of how can security be an enabler versus security be the big brother or the, the gate before you're let out into the ocean or something like, is, is that fair to describe your mindset? Yes, that is exactly it. And, and, you know, and, and I, because I truly believe that security's job, and this is why I, I have a problem with where the industry, security industry is now, is because people have taken it as their own personal mission of I'm here to protect the company. And therefore, I'm going to walk around with a ship on my shoulder and tell people what they can and can't do. And then I actually feel pride on the things I say you can't do more so than I feel pride on the things that you say you can do. And then I've seen security people called the user idiots and things like that, right? So it's 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 still very bad. And I get it. There are industries that are more regulated than, say, gaming or or technology or what have you. But at the end of the day, we're all here to risk manage risk. And I see a lot of security teams treat that as a one one player, one team, or one person sport. Uh, so, for example, one of the things that I hear a lot of from security people is, "Oh, I identified this risk." And it's always very hard to engage with the engineering team and get them to do something about it. And then when I ask them, like, okay, when I ask the, the people, like, how do you get to the risk? How do you understand what's the impact? Like, what do you get this data from? It's always like, well, I did my own assessment. And I'm like, well, I'm sorry, but if I'm, you know, I happen to have the luxury of having run development teams. So if you approach me and you say, hey, this is a risk and the impact is high, my first response is going to be like, you have no idea what our systems work. Like, how do you get to that uh, agreement? Now, if I agree, then I agree and we work on it, right? But there's always that notion of security is there to just like slam papers on somebody's desk and somebody must respond to it. And in reality, that's not the case anymore uh, because the, our, the demand of our customers has gone so, you know, have grown so much that people want things now, right? And that mindset does not work in the now era, right? Which is what we live where we live in. So yeah, so that is exactly how I describe it. Hulu was the same. So Hulu, we were all on-prem. I happened to have the luxury of work at Hulu when we were when they moved to, completely to the cloud. Um, and the thing that my team with the platform engineering team did was that the thing that Hulu had right when I joined is that they had a developer experience team. They had a, a platform engineering team. And, and it wasn't just like, we have this DevOps team and everyone else, screw yourself. Like um, the platform engineering team started building paths for engineers to be able to deploy their code, monitor their runtime and things like that. And then security there in a transition to the cloud, what we did was like, okay, we're going to do a complete paradigm shift here. And then what we're going to do is we're going to build a system where we created a collection of Terraform templates for all the different parts of the Hulu platform and say, okay, developer, if you want to spin up a new ad server, execute this Terraform template and all the security concerns are done for you. And then we started training people on like, how do you build others? And sure, in a trust but verify model, we then we have Sentinel policies that make sure that the things that we really, really care about were implemented. Um, and, you know, at first it was really rocky because it was a complete, diff- completely different paradigm and philosophy. But once we got the traction on it and people started understanding the value, then it got better. And how we started getting adoption is we found the one developer lead that worked with us, liked it. Then you go tell your friends. So it's sort of like, go tell your friends about us. And he got pretty good adoption. And I think we're successful for that. So yeah, so I think that's, you, you know, my philosophy. 
You were you were inventing PLG for internal <laughs> internal tooling and practices. I love it. Exactly. It's Go like, tell your friends. It's amazing. First um, one is free. Yeah. <laughs> what one concept I'm curious about actually is you you talked about uh, having those those partners or those those people that you identified to say, hey, listen, your job is to go and sit in the meetings, understand that, bring that context back so that we can we can better understand how the groups are working and how we can integrate security into that process. It almost sounds to me like, uh, you know, Palantir had this concept of like the forward deployed engineer that would basically live in a customer's environment just to understand things. And, you know, everyone talks about, a lot of security leaders talk about, you know, the SOC, right? And everything goes into the SOC and, you know, the, it's it's that's where all events get analyzed and directions get pushed out from things like that. But from what you're describing, that's like, did you not really then have the concept of a SOC or a SOC group? Or- yeah, so th- that's very valid. And so at PlayStation, we did have a SOC. And I remember for, for quite a while, I mean, they were great people. They wanted to collaborate. But for a long time, they struggled because they were just getting alerts from things that they just didn't know what they were. But also, inner department communication wasn't the best as it is with any large organization. Uh, so say my team would add a new security control or technology that would start spitting out alerts to them, but we forgot to inform them what they were and what for. So we started getting, at least for my team, I made a point of meeting with the SOC team, the detection team, and like talking to them about like, what do we think? Um, but then more importantly, when we actually hit certain things that we had to investigate, I remember either myself or somebody from my team will go down to where the SOC was or is probably, and we will whiteboard like a flow. Like, hey, one example I can say is like one time we were investigating voucher cards being already redeemed when people just bought them from the store. Uh, and we and we went down this rabbit hole thinking that we had gotten compromised and what have you. So we drew the entire flow for when somebody submits a code to us which systems does it hit? How does it work? Because we had that understanding. And the, sorry, the detection team was pretty good about like, feed me more data. Like I want to learn this, right? So we built that relationship at the end. At Hulu and Datadog, we don't have SOC, like a, a just a, you know, we do have detection engineers and we, we build, you know, we work with our own products at Datadog. At Hulu, we had a platform where we just build a detection that we cared about and then responded to that. Primarily because I believe that SOC, SOC resides in a silo in most organizations and then they, they just create tickets, right? So you have all this momentum where you have 20 security engineers that just work on building a security technology and all this great work and all this blog posts and all that. But whenever they find something, somebody else just creates a ticket and it ends in a ticket. Um, so I wanted something better, right? So at Datadog, you know, we have the benefit of using our products, but each you know, we provide that security visibility to the to the developers. So they have their own dashboards, their own monitors. Sure, we respond to things, and sometimes we do have to follow up. Sometimes we do have to create the damn tickets, but uh, but we try to be as that to be as minimal as possible. Yeah, that that's amazing. That's uh, I think that's something I've I've heard few security leaders talk about, but but everyone would love that to be the goal, right? It's just sometimes I feel like they have almost too much organizational baggage or, or something around to be able to enact that. But that's, that's very cool. Well, it, what, one thing I would love to talk about, which I can't uh, you know, not talk to you about with the amount of founders that are uh, listening, is you've had thousands of companies pitch you their security products to, uh, to buy as a customer. Right? So how have security companies been able to break through the noise and get through to you as, as, and say, hey, you should purchase my product? Yeah, I get this question a lot because 
we're also very vocal about how many of these sales emails we get and how we don't respond to any of them. And, and, you know, and, and, and that very valid. So I have sales leaders or, or founders ask me, then how do I sell to you? Usually my answer is, is not trying to be snarky, but my answer is don't sell to me, sell to my team. Primarily because I've always, yeah, I'm connected to technology. I talk to a lot of founders. I, I, I like to stay close to what's coming out there. You know, I talk to you, I talk to, you know, VCs who are invested in early stage companies because I want to learn and see what else is, what else is being worked on. And maybe there's a new trend that I haven't thought of and things like that or a new approach. Uh, but I've always been the type of leader who I let my, I, I hire people because I trust them. Right. And, and if, if I'm the one making all the decisions then I, then I, I'm failing, but also then I'm not sleeping at night. Right. And then I don't have weekends and I don't have time off because if all the decisions come to me, then, then the system is bound for failure. So I, you know, so to my team. And then I, I think what attracts us are new, what attracts me in particular, I can't speak for all my team, but what attracts me are how do you take you know, in security, we always say this notion of like, oh, we've been working with this for the, with on the same problems for 20 years. And I think the follow the snarky follow up that I have this, with that is like, yeah, but we've been trying to solve them the same way for 20 years and we're failed. Right. So it's the problems are always going to be there. Right. If you don't try new ways of solving them, then you're never going to solve them. Like you can have a leak in your house for 20 years. But if you never actually fully patch it, then you're always going to have water committing. It doesn't matter how much paper you put on it. Um, so. To me, it's like how you're taking a, a an existential or what I call boring problems and solving it in a more exciting way. And by me, more exciting is how do you actually get the people who have to deal or live the outcome of that action or decision, how do you get them to fall in love with your product? And, and that's something that I think of security. Security, when it comes to technology, has the easiest job ever because we can, we can A, security spend still grows even with this down market. And most of the security teams that I know are like, I would rather buy a hundred things just to make sure that we're protected rather than like, let's actually build an ecosystem that makes sense and, and buy things that just connect to each other. So I can buy a hundred pieces of technology, put them, 30 of them might be running operationally. The other 70 are, are you know, shelfware. Uh, and then these 30 things are just spitting out things that other people have to respond to and take action on. That's the easiest job ever. I'm here to just tell you what the problem is and it's your job to fix it. Otherwise, I'm going to slap you with a policy document and, 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 and complain. That's in a nutshell what security is right now. It might be a very pessimistic way, but I think if you, if you get some data, you'll find out that's exactly what it is. So I like products that actually involve the other persona that actually has to respond to the problem, right? And and I think one of the things that I wrote, I talk about how it might be an interesting KPI for security products to start measuring, which is like the time to decision. How fast do you enable teams or your customers to make a decision? But more importantly, how do you enable the team that has to take the action and able, you know, take get to that decision? So those are the products that I'm interested in that that get my attention. Yeah. But at the end of the day, you know, how you sell to me, you sell to my team. Yeah, we'll link to that post in the in the uh, in the show notes. But w- one question I do have is: so there are some products that necessitate almost like a a top down mandate. Let's say something like probably something like endpoint security, right? Like it's it's very hard for an individual to go in, look at that, say, "Oh, this is awesome, and I want to use it." Well, if it only monitors your your laptop and it doesn't work with everything else, probably not that that useful, right? So so I'm assuming some some things need to be made at a you know 
CISO or, or, or top down perspective. But then others, when there's, when you say sell to your team, like I'm assuming that team still has to go to you for budget approval though, right? Cause in the end, like you are the one who, you know, is, is, is talking with the CFO, is talking with various stakeholders and, and basically understanding where you can invest and how you can invest that, that money. Is, is that the right way to think about that? Hey, the team gets excited, but then at some point they're still going to have to come up to you or, or somebody else in leadership to say, hey, listen, we've done the work. We think it's amazing. We think it helps in this way and make the case of why it, sh- it should be purchased. Yeah. So that's, that's usually how it goes. And so the flow is, you know, the team evaluates, well, A, you have to identify a need, right? Like you can't just onboard a vendor for the sake of onboarding a vendor. So the need sometimes, and I think getting to your point, the need sometimes can be top down, right? So you know, one example, when I joined Datadog, we use an open source as, um, tool for endpoint detection. I don't have anything against that. I don't have anything against open source. So I don't want the FOSS mafia to come to my house and, and, and strike me, but I love open source. But when you're talking about an enterprise at scale, when you have customers that are enterprise, they expect more when they ask you what endpoint protection do you have. So we wanted to go commercial. And then the team did the bake off, they, they, you know, that where the bottom up came up was, which is the right tool for us? So I didn't go to the team and say, we must use that, right? I said, hey, I get it that we use open source. It's been awesome for us, but here's some limitations. Here's what I'm hearing from customers. Here are the concerns that we hear. Let's go with the commercial product. Here's the budget is approved. Go at it, right? And, and so they did the bake off and they came back to me and said, here's our top second and third option. And then from there, everything went to it. So there's truth to that, but I think the need is more can sometimes be more top down than the direction of the product. Now, I'm sure there are exceptions out there where we have CISOs that said I want this product to be purchased and I think sometimes a lot 99% of the time that's a mistake, but uh, but you will see that every now and then. But I wouldn't optimize for it though. Well, we we heard it here first. One product that Datadog actually purchased in the security <laughs> space. I may keep a list at some point. But uh, uh, I think you've written about this and talked about it before, but you know, you you described it actually a little bit earlier where you started talking about about risk and security's job to 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 manage risk. And I've heard you actually say this phrase. I think it's uh, you want to allow companies to operate at an acceptable level of risk, right? Yes. When I hear a statement like that, I immediately go, "Hey, Emilio, I like you. I don't want you to get fired for you know what like for taking some acceptable level of risk." But then. You know what's the acceptable level of risk to a different stakeholder, right? A public market investor in Datadog or something like that, right? And so, how do you one? How do you determine what that acceptable level is? And two, like, how do you get comfortable with operating within that acceptable level of risk when if something goes wrong, like usually, like the CISO immediately gets you know <laughs> gets blamed, right? And yeah. it's just like what the, what the hell happened, right? So, kind of talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, yeah. So. You know, I, I first I gotta say I, to correct, I, I quote is we're here to allow the company to operate at the highest level of acceptable risk. So okay. There's that, there's that there's that specification, but not too far from what you said. So, you know, it is unfortunate that the the CISO role is seen as a scapegoat in a lot of organizations, and and I'm not denying that happens. But I also think as a CISO coming into organization, it's our job to also understand what is the framework for that as well. Uh, so one of the things that I did when when I was interviewing with Datadog was talking to the founders and understanding like what is it, how is it that they think about security and how much value does it mean to the business, to the top line, to the bottom line, 
from a risk standpoint, what does the board think? And there are a couple of other things that I've given advice to people who are interviewing for CISO roles. Like one example is if you're not interviewing, at least talking to one board member, then maybe that should be a yellow flag for like what their role is actually going to be. Unfortunately, you still have those organizations that would immediately turn and blame the CISO. Now, there's also a truth to it where if you do go to a compromise and you have a CISO that doesn't know how to respond to it, then I think that's a fireable offense. Not the fact that it met, that happened is how do you respond to it and how do you act after that? A lot of people will use a breach as a token and say, now I'm going to get all the budget that I can. And I can tell you I have examples of companies that have gone through issues and the comment that I've gotten when I talk to them because they happen to be vendors or what have you in the past is like, well, we used to have three agents. Now we're going to have five agents. So we're going to make sure this doesn't happen again. I'm like, okay, so I'll be talking to you in a quarter because that's the wrong take, right? So there is some truth to it. Now, you know, how do you get to understand the acceptable level of risk? It's like, first of all, it wasn't something that I defined in a vacuum, right? I didn't come in there and say, Ollie, Alexi, this is what I think our acceptable level of risk is and, and you must abide to it. Uh, this came up of plenty of after plenty of conversations with them. What are they worried? What do we worry about? What have you heard? What are customers saying? What are your investors saying? Right? Like what what are what are they? What's happening in the market in the ecosystem? What are other software companies doing? What are they falling for? Um, and and then that led me to give me that gave me enough information to say okay for a company like Datadog where we customers deploy our software within their infrastructure. Trust is paramount. Um, and I'm not saying, you know, we're, you know, we're a software company, right? So you know, we, we do make mistakes, but trust is paramount. And second to that then was, okay, nothing is 100%. We know we're going to go through stuff. What is our philosophy around transparency and trust to our customers? How much should we care about it? What do we do in the event that we define something that we think customers should know about? And, and, you know, those are examples of some of the conversations. And then we get to a framework that just works that. So I think if a CISO positions himself in that way, sure, again, there's still exceptions of companies out there that they only hire a CISO just to check a box and say, we have a CISO and the moment something happens and you're fired and bring somebody else. Those, I hope we can filter out through interview process, during the interview process. But I think once you land for a company that truly cares about security, then these are part of the conversations that every CISO must have. You just don't go in there and sit in your CISO corner and start demanding policies here and there because then that's when things will fail. So the highest level of acceptable risk is, is something that you you learn. And the, by the way, the threshold of that changes, right? As a company grows, you know, say you're only capturing SMB market, there's a little bit of more risk tolerance there than now you're focusing on enterprise where the tolerance for risk is much lower. Say you want to go into the public sector FedRAMP world, the, to the tolerance is even much lower, right? So you have to understand and then, but you can't go too crazy one way or the other. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And no matter what, we will not be able to remove humans from the loop, right? And so if you think about most of this, right, we talk about phishing. Well, what happens? You know, uh, Jerry from accounting clicks on, you know, an email and then all of a sudden, is credentials compromised, and then they get into the billing system, and so on and so forth, right? And so, on the on the one hand, you could have all the systems in the world that set that up, but if Jerry still clicks on that link, chances are you you've opened up at least a potential vector of a breach to to occur. And so, I guess like 
will we always just have training and 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 something like that like the manual part of security will that always be something that we're dealing with and always something that we need to be improving upon and doing continuous education on or something or yeah and for those listeners jerry always clicks on the link by the way it's it's always jerry so if you have a jerry on your team be highly suspicious i'm kidding you know i i i (laughs) I think there's always going to be a human element. Work with people, right? I don't think AI is at the point where it can do a, it can do Jerry's job yet. Except if if we want AI to just click on links, then that's pretty sure to pro- that's pretty easy to program. Um, so you know, to me, I, what I prefer to do, and 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 I have disagreements with some people on this, is I actually don't believe, and this is a personal belief, I don't believe so much in phishing scenarios, phishing simulations, that you know, tricking people to fall for it. And sure, if somebody comments on the podcast or writes me and saying, but if the attackers can do it, you know, why can't we? I'm gonna just laugh and not respond. Because I think I think it's our job to make sure that one click doesn't take the whole company down. Right. And and that's not on Jerry. Uh, unless Jerry happens to work for security or IT or what have you, but uh, it is an ecosystem, right? It's a, it's an or, an, an organism, and where I say there's always going to be the human element is that you always have to be close to people, and and you know what P- mistakes will be made. So I think as just as we, you know, all these te- technical technology companies talk about blameless post modems, we should do blameless everything across the board because we have humans at the end of the day that are trying to do their job. So. For those who think phishing training works, I, I will ask you how many emails a day do you get that require you to click on a link and that you have to find the one, the just one that's bad, seems like a very unlikely task for a human. Sure, you might have technology that helps. That's why you have email security products that are quite successful. So there's always a training element. But what I focus on is actually how do we make it super easy for people to report anything they think is suspicious? It doesn't matter if it ends up being, you know, a fake Warren Buffett asking for money or actually a real phishing email is just report it and we'll get back to you. And then that helps with that training as well. But what I want to train people is I prefer having people train on how to report and who to talk to rather than let me make sure I don't click on something bad because that's never going to be accomplished. But you can 100% get your workforce to know Whenever I see something suspicious, I can just click on this button next to my email tab and it's going to get some, some response. And I know I'm not going to get reprimanded by, by, by clicking on something that happened to be a, a real email. I would rather optimize for that. And again, like your, our job is to make sure that people have to write, there's a system of guardrails. And I'm not saying it's 100% breach proof, right? But I'm saying like at least probability wise, we should be able to address the majority of them. So do your threat models. What are your users prone to? What systems do you have? What are your access controls? How do you deploy multi-factor that is fish-proof and things like that? Those are just core basics that every security team should be focusing on and deploying them to their organization. One, one of the things you also do at Datadog is not just manage security, but also IT as well. And, and, and so on top of all the other roles with talking with customers and, and stakeholders and things like that, you know, I, I think, uh, one, can you talk about managing IT? And one thing I've heard you talk about that's that's stuck in my mind is an internal NPS score that you associate with shadow IT, essentially, or shadow IT is your internal NPS score. And so talk about what that means in the context of, of managing the IT org. Yeah. So managing IT has been a, a, a 
really good experience so far, primarily because, you know, I, I, it hasn't been my, my experience in the past. I've, I've, you know, my teams in the past have collaborated deeply with IT, but organizationally we were structured separately. At Datadog, it makes perfect sense because so much of what we do in IT has security repercussions. And then we're a product company. So I, I, we want the CTO to focus on the product. Let me handle the internal aspect, including IT. So it's been a great learning experience for me. And again, like, you know, I I overemphasize on humans. So I, I think IT just falls very naturally to, to me and, and what I think. So it's been great. You know, as far as MPS and shadow IT, we're not really good at capturing MPS. But what I do think about shadow IT is, is yeah, there's a very small percentage of shadow IT that is, I don't care about what you're telling me. I just want this and therefore I'm going to go get it, even though it has all these risks that we've communicated, small percentage of that. And I don't think I deal with that at Datadog so much. I see shadow IT as we're not providing a service that people are asking for. And therefore I need to go, if, if I'm in a, if I'm Jerry from accounting and I need, I need a, an accounting software because it's core to what I do for a business and there's none available from an IT perspective, then, and my CFO is telling me, if you don't have this accounting report done, you're fired. I'm going to go get an accounting software because that's my job depends on it. Um, so I, 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 that's why I think of shadow IT as an NPS, because to me, it's like if there's too much shadow IT, then you have to wonder what technology is IT providing, what services are enabled, enabled by IT, but also how are they communicated, how are they offered to employees. I, I'm a big believer in IT self-service portals, where here's a, a list of approved software, go install any that you want. Now, granted, we have to be financially responsible and not just give license to everyone and, every, and everything. But for the core components of what makes up our technology, collaboration, email, what have you, there is no excuse for not having a portal that people can just install what they need. But more importantly, if you're Jerry from accounting and finance and your laptop should be provisioned with the software that you need from day one and the access to the SaaS systems that you need, just like if you're, you know, uh, Nancy from engineering, right? So th those two are, are equally true as well. Yeah. One of the things I think I've, I've learned just from this episode and talking with you here is uh, security and trust go together. And, and to be, yeah. it's, it's kind of weird that that's not been something that have been related in my mind so far, because maybe it's actually when I think security, I think don't trust, right? Zero trust, right? Uh, but I think, I think what you've made clear is, uh, is the fact that that trust is incredibly important to enabling security to happen in the right way and, and not just be a blocker, but actually be an enabler. Right. And, and I think, and not to toot my own horn too much, but yeah, I think, I think security teams to refocus our mindset to more tr a trust and safety team rather than a security team. Because if I associate security, you associate it with, you know, you go to a concert, there's somebody standing by the entrance or going to scan you for medals or and all that. And, or, you know, or, or they'll pick you up and kick you out if you, if you're being a little bit too rowdy. Um, and whereas that's not what we're doing in enterprise or a company, right? Like we're, we work with people, everyone wants to do their job. And this whole notion, and I got to maybe finish if with anything, if not, if, if with anything, this, this whole notion about, I hear a lot of people say security doesn't own the risk. Security is there to call the risk. That is true to an extent where they're not our systems. We don't understand them. We can make risk decisions for other people. But company-wide, from like bigger picture standpoint, 
we're equally a player in that risk decision as everyone else is. Because if you work for a public company and part of your compensation is equity and the company goes through a breach and the equity goes down, you're also going to be complaining about your pay going down, right? So in a way, you're you're owning the risk in that sense. Because and, and I hate when teams think about like, oh, we're just here to call the risk. Like that's somebody else's problem. But then when something bad happens, it's like, oh, poo, how you decide on that, right? So, you know, we can't have it both ways. We want our cake and eat it too. So I think focusing on trust and safety is really what I've been pushing my teams and what I think my philosophy is where we're here to build systems that enable people to do their job, right? And I think, for example, the, the fish-proof two-factor authentication is a perfect example of that. You know, if you want security, you just deploy two-factor. If you want safety, you deploy fish-proof two-factor. And then you have a whole slew of problems that, not that you don't have to worry about, but they shouldn't be the top of your threat model at that point. Yeah. So we have two questions we ask everyone on, on Software Snack Bites to wrap it up. So first one, what's your favorite technology or app or anything that you've played with recently? So lately, I've been trying to learn TypeScript and Next.js, and it, it's just for fun, I guess, because soft web development is very different from the days that I used to do it. I think I remember... Ajax being the, the greatest thing when I was doing web development. So I've been playing with that. So I, I've actually been, can I just say any product or? or you any, can say any product, yeah. I've actually been quite pleased and happy with Vercel. I think it's been pretty easy to deploy stuff to that where you don't have to necessarily worry about how that works. So if you ask me how Next.js and React works, I will not be able to answer to you, but at least I can put some forms together in a page and all that. So that's where I am so far. That's that's amazing. Given you were at PlayStation, I know you're a gamer also. What's your what's your favorite game that you've played uh, recently? Or it doesn't have to be recently. You could have played it consistently. But what's your favorite game right now? You know, favorite game right now, I don't think I have any new games that are my favorite. But not because it's a show out there already currently. But I've, I, I, I've always thought of The Last of Us as being one of the best games I've ever played. I just actually replayed it on the PS5. I think I played it first on the PS3. And, you know, the graphics are very much drastically different. Um, and, and I'm super excited about the current show that's that's going on. So, and I like it because you don't have to have played the game to watch the show. But I, I, I love that story. It's uh, A lot of people miss the fact that it's a story about love, not the story about people becoming mushrooms and, and, and running around biting other people. But yeah. Saw it on HBO, and and so you said Last of Us, and I was like, wait a second, why you're, you're talking about the show that came out? But that's that's uh, good to know that it was a game actually, well before it was a show. So that, that's cool. I'll, I'll have to check it out. Um, what's uh, so last thing? It's called Snack Bites. What's your favorite snack? Oh man, you know when I saw this in the dog, I, I, this I think was the hardest question for me <laughs> to answer because I'm a snack monster. Uh, I have to go with Boom Chicka Pop uh, popcorn. Mm. The there's their kettle corn, sweet and savory popcorn. Is it is that a healthy like popcorn or? I mean, it's it's healthier than eating chips, I guess. But uh, I mean, the water <laughs> still is popcorn. Than, <laughs> it's still popcorn, <laughs> but yeah, it's just it's just very addictive. So I, I have to go with that one. Well, thanks so much, Emilio, for the time. How can people find you if they'd like to get you in touch? And and also, we'll be putting your, your Twitter and stuff in, in the show notes, but just what's the best way for people to get in touch with you? Yeah, so I think Twitter or LinkedIn are, are the best the best uh, ways. So if you want to disagree or, or, or throw rocks at me, Twitter and LinkedIn are the best places. 
I love it. Well, it was. Uh, thank you so much for for chatting and taking the time and some great insights here. And I think security and trust and or trust and safety instead of security and security being an enabler are the things that I really took home from this. So thank you for, very much for your time. Looking forward to doing this again soon.